from jazz icon Oscar Peterson. Ironically, when you think about it, musicians and performers have done this for years. They've gone out on stage and worked with one another. This race with that race. This type of person with that type of person. With no problems. So I guess it means that we're going to have to turn the world into a world of performers so that they understand what love is all about. Welcome to Jazz Backstory. We've titled our next two episodes, The Color of Jazz, an admittedly weighty subject about race relations in jazz and in the environment the musicians worked in. Jazz did not develop in a vacuum, and musicians were profoundly affected by regional laws and the unwritten codes of society. In episode 13, we heard black musicians speak of segregated theaters and dance halls, harassment on the road by law enforcement, and discrimination in restaurants and hotels. The same artists we now celebrate as cultural heroes were subjected to treatment that now seems incongruous with the artistic status jazz enjoys today. Music, and jazz in particular, has always been ahead of the societal curve regarding race relations. Our interviewees shared a unified message that once musicians make it to the stage and studio, talent and personality override all other issues. Despite the social ills that plagued America, a sense of spirit and camaraderie flourished between musicians. You may recall Frank Foster speaking about his shiny stockings arrangement for Count Basie in a recent episode. As an African-American musician and leader of the Loud Minority Big Band, Frank's comments on jazz and race are relevant to our topic. You don't have to be of any particular racial persuasion to be good at jazz. You know, all that stuff about, this is our music, nobody can play this music but us. Forget it. Anybody, I mean, not anybody individually. You know, I don't think I don't think every person born uh, into this world is a jazz musician. Right. And I don't agree with the uh, somebody's got something out that says anybody, everybody can improvise. I don't. I don't go. Oh, with that's that. right. There's a, a series. Anybody yeah. can improvise. Yeah, I don't. I'm, I don't subscribe <laughs> to that. But. You know, it's an individual thing. It's not necessarily a. It's not a racial thing. We 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 have, we have such a melting pot here. To we're all into each other's culture. Okay, I contend that jazz was born in America as a result of the black experience. Now nobody in the world could ever convince me that that isn't true, mm -hmm. okay? But now, as I said before, we got this melting pot where we're all into everybody, each other's culture. Uh, we can emulate one another, 
and we can uh, relate to one another. And talent wasn't just given to whites or blacks or Latinos or Asiatics or whatever. Every racial ethnic group has talent. And all God's children got rhythm. <laughs> uh, some more than others. <laughs> Look, man, I know some I know some black folks who can't clap on two and four. <laughs> one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. I know some folks that can't do this. One, two, three, four. On the other hand, I know some white folks every time will say <laughs> and vice versa, you know. Yeah. So we've all got talented people and we've all got some no talented people. Yeah. <laughs> every ethnic and racial group has somebody blowing a horn that should put it down and forget <laughs> and be a plumber or a postman or something. Right. But when I hear somebody who's not black perform on an instrument and that person is good, they're good, regardless of what somebody else black might say, oh, he can't play, she can't play. And it hurt me years ago. I had one of my trumpet players, do you know, are you familiar with Lou Soloff? Certainly. Well, this guy just put Lou Soloff in the garbage can. He can't play, he never could. And Lou Soloff is a monster. <laughs> he can play anything. He can play jazz. He can play lead trumpet. He can play in a section. He can, you know, he can just do anything that's necessary for a jazz trumpeter to do. Big band, small group, whatever. So when one of us can do it, give us the credit. When one of them can do it, give them the credit. It ain't about, you know, I don't feel threatened by anybody. Mm -hmm. If you can play and you're white, great. Let's let's play together. All right. <laughs> if you can't play and you're white, go play with someone else. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't play and you're black, get out of here. Go play with that white yeah, guy. Right. Can't play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> On my list of favorite quotes is Frank's statement: "I contend that jazz was born in America." as a result of the black experience. It's the verbal equivalent of a perfect riff. Early jazz bands predictably reflected a segregated society. Black and white bands coexisted while finding gigs in mostly separate circles. After Freddie Keppard, a New Orleans Creole trumpeter, passed on the chance at being the first jazz musician to record, a white group, the original Dixieland Jazz Band, made the first jazz record in 1917. The inherent differences between early black and white bands is a favorite topic for debate amongst jazz scholars and serious fans. Depending on which history book you read, the first mixed band recording was with Jelly Roll Morton's New Orleans Rhythm Kings in 1923. A mixed band in a recording studio was one thing, a performance in a public theater was another. Black and white musicians might play on the same stage, but not at the same time. Band leader Benny Goodman 
dubbed the King of Swing in 1936 with the urging of Helen Dance and John Hammond, included black musicians Teddy Wilson and Lionel Hampton in a series of jazz concerts. In our present time, our reaction is, so what? Lionel Hampton put it in perspective of 1936 during our 1995 interview. First black musicians to play in a white band. Yeah. See, Teddy Wilson was 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 in, was uh, playing with Benny, but uh, 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 he used to play when Benny used to take in the mission, and no no white musicians musicians was on stage. Oh Lord. But, but Teddy would play by himself. See, so I was the first one uh, uh, legally. To really uh, uh, break that thing down. Uh, first, first, uh, yeah, to break that. That's great. Uh, break that tradition down. <laughs> but you know, the uh, funny thing about it, wasn't no black, wasn't no black and white playing playing together. No place. Yeah. Not in pitches, moving pitches, not in baseball, uh, for football, uh, uh, no kind of sport. Yeah. The, the Quartet was the first right. mixed group. It was, you know. Mr. Hampton had suffered a stroke affecting his speech, so I feel compelled to repeat a portion of his recollection. Teddy Wilson was playing with Benny, but he used to play when Benny used to take intermission, and no white musicians was on stage. Then Teddy would play by himself. There was no black and white playing together, no place. Not in moving pictures, not in baseball or football. No kind of sports. The Benny Goodman Quartet was the first mixed group. As an aside, I well remember October 18, 1995, in New York City. My interview with Mr. Hampton was preceded by a session with singer John Hendricks. Their arrival and departure coincided. Two jazz legends in the same hotel room. John greeted Lionel with... Hey, Gates, what's up? Lionel returned the greeting with, Hey, Gates, what's happening? I was surrounded by hipness. John Hendricks commented on that socially significant moment in 1936 that Lionel Hampton was a part of. Now, very prevalent. You have people coming out of jazz schools uh, into you know, the jazz scene, without the main thing they need, they have the notes, you know. They can play all the notes, up and down, every scale. They, they know uh, the names of every chord, but they don't know anything about the culture that made the music mm -hmm. possible. They don't know anything about the society from which the music came, of which the music is an expression. Mm -hmm. They don't know anything about the love and the and the feeling of collectivism, of love for each other, of consideration for your fellow musician. Right. That is is that is the key to the music being played yeah. really correctly. They know nothing about that. They know everything from up here. They know the notes on the paper, but the notes on the paper are not the music. The music comes from the heart. 
And it's so important because jazz, especially, was was so important in breaking some of the racial uh, problems down. Absolutely. You know, like like Lionel was, yeah. Benny Goodman is an American social hero. He is a he is a hero in in the development of American society. Outside of music, Benny Goodman is a social hero mm -hmm. because his love for the music was so pure that he just did not understand why he couldn't have Lionel Hampton in his band, mm -hmm. and then Charlie Christian, and then Teddy Wilson. You know, he just didn't understand that. And and the, and the bean counters and the accountants. And the lawyers, they tried to explain to him, Benny, you lose your show. You, they will not renew you on the camel caravan if you do this. So you know, they gave him all those, those uh, uh, very hard and, and, and fast business reasons. Mm -hmm. But he refused to understand them. Yeah. He said, I like those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he did what people have to march now to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and it's it's because of the power of the music, the love of the music. Uh -huh. I was just talking to Lionel's man over there, and I asked how how's Lionel doing. He says, "Well, he's okay, but he's got this gig uh, ne next week, you know, coming up yeah. at the Blue Note." I said, "That's no problem." I said, "As long as the music plays, he's all right. Yeah. You know, he'll be cool." <laughs> yeah, it's when the music stops that you have to worry. Yeah, yeah. Well, is. You know, one of his last records here says, for the love of music. Yeah, you know, that's, exactly. That's what it's exactly. all about. Speaking of two jazz giants in one room, a memorable session for us occurred later that same year on the Hamilton College campus. Vocalist Joe Williams and trumpet master Clark Terry traded stories about their careers. A sort of, oh, that's a good one, but check this one out. Clark Terry shared one, relating an incident that could have permanently skewed his view on race relations. You'll hear Clark use the term Nigerian, his substitute for the N-word that was all too common in the time and place of this story. Relation, uh, related to similar incident. I'm traveling in the south, uh, in Meridian, Mississippi. Mm. And uh, we were, I was with a carnival, I, uh, uh, Reuben and Cherry Carnival. So we went in the deep south and uh, for winter quarters. And uh, while playing this, this show during the week, they always hire somebody in the city as a hired hand to keep law and order on the midway. You know, always uh, invariably the 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 show that was the, the black show was always at the end of the mm -hmm. midway. So this cat comes through. Now this is closing night, and we're getting ready to go uh, pack up the, the the crew and pack up all of the equipment, and the crew puts things together. We get on the train. We have our own train, and we going on to the next place. So uh, I'm waiting for the drummer Marvin Wright, who was a good buddy of mine, uh, to pack up his drums. And while waiting for the drummer to pack up his drums, uh, he had met a, a lady during the week, and yeah, she, she was very, she was a, a fair complexion, you mm -hmm. know, and you know the situation down there. With yeah. the, 
So Why I'm standing, almost wiped your mind. That's right. <laughs> so I'm standing there with, with Marvin's lady friend, waiting on Marvin to unpack his stuff because the Mills Blue Rhythm Band was playing in town that night. Uh, so we're going to the dance. Well, here comes this little cat, and I'm standing there. What are you doing standing out here in this, on this mirror after the lights is out? Nigerian? You know? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I said, well, I'm waiting on the, the drummer. I said, you with this here show, boy? I said, yes, I am. He said, you said, what'd you say? Yes, I, I am. I said, yes, I am. He said, do you realize what you said? I said, well, you asked me a question and I answered it yeah. properly, I thought. Yeah. He said, do you realize that you said yes? to a white man, and oh. that's all I remember. I got a black jacket at home right now to, to remind me of this. One of those lid things covered in, in he the... Did he hit you? He hit me right here, man. Bam! Oh. And, uh, and my head got so big, I don't know uh, uh, what happened after that, except that what I was told by the train crew. Now, this is an example of I could have... That could have motivated me to hate Caucasians the rest of my life, but well, he it didn't. Killed because... you. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what happened: that when he he left me laying in a puddle of mud, and the and the, the work crew was all Caucasian. They picked me up, took me back to the show trains, and this by the time they got back, this dude comes back with about twenty people with axes and and uh, uh, sledgehammers and chains and saws and picks and shovels and everything. Say, where's that Nigerian we left laying down there in that, in that, in that mud? Yeah. And the guys, the Caucasian said to him, oh, he was some smart aleck. We just kicked him in the pants and set him up that way. So they ran that way, ran that way looking for me, where in reality I was back here uh -huh. in the show train. So yeah. that's one hand washed the other. You know? And this is long before I even realized that the importance of, of love and uh, was uh, was motivated by love after that, but if this was just something within me that uh, helped me to balance out decency and right from wrong, you know. Clark answered the man's question with a simple yes, failing to include sir, thus earning a blackjack to the side of his head. His surprising rescue most likely saved his life. In the entertainment world, even at the carnival level, it seems that musicians, entertainers, and the ever-present crew operate with an extra dose of empathy. A brief jazz vocabulary moment. We've used the term mixed bands, denoting a working band with black and white members. It could mean the Lucky Millinder Band from our Joe Wilder episode 13 story, with multiple white musicians, or it could mean a band with one member who wasn't supposed to be there, as with Billie Holiday and Louis Belson. And then there's race records, recordings from the early 20th century that were recorded for and marketed to a specific audience. In the case of jazz and blues, the audience was African-American. So-called race records were also produced for Irish, Italian, and other immigrant populations. Even after the success of the Benny Goodman, Gene Krupa, Teddy Wilson, Lionel Hampton Quartet, life for black musicians in a white band could be trying at best. 
Billie Holiday moved from the Basie Band to the Artie Shaw Orchestra in 1938. The following is a passage from Robert O'Mealy's book, The Many Faces of Billie Holiday. And I quote, Eventually, there were troubles on the road, exacerbated by the shocking sight of one gorgeous black woman performing with 14 white men. Often Holiday could not get a room in the hotels where the rest of the band stayed, nor eat with them in white restaurants. It wasn't long before she said, The roughest days with the Basie band began to look like a breeze. I got to the point where I hardly ever slept, ate, or went to the bathroom without having a major NAACP-type production. End quote. And it worked both ways. The esteemed Duke Ellington recognized the talents of white drummer Louis Belson, and in 1951, Duke hired him for the drum chair in his jazz orchestra. From our 1996 interview with Mr. Belson. Was there any, ever any problem um, in certain parts of the country with any racial um, subjects coming up? Well, yes, we did have. In 1951, they had the big show of 1951, which consisted of Nat King Cole, Sarah Vaughan, and Duke Ellington's band. They were the, the three big stars. Mm -hmm. Now, beside that, they had Peg Leg Bates, Timmy Rogers, Stumpin' Stumpy, uh, Patterson and Jackson, all these wonderful acts, tap dancing acts. And uh, it took us a week to rehearse that whole show, because playing with Nat, Nat King Cole and Sarah, Duke and all these acts. So after we finished uh, rehearsing for a week, Duke finally discovered that, hey, we're getting ready to go down to the Deep South, you know? And in those days, uh, you had segregated audiences. And and uh, we couldn't, you, you, you couldn't play, whites couldn't play with the blacks at that time. Mm -hmm. and in those days, it was colored. They didn't use the born right. blacks. Mm -hmm. So now the big problem is, Duke called me in the dressing room and said, what are we going to do? I can't find a drummer to uh, take your place because it would be a, a week's rehearsal and the guys that can do it, they're all busy. So uh, Duke says, you mind being an Haitian? I said, no, okay, that's all right. You know? So uh, we got through it okay. You know, It was a little tense because yeah. uh, the situation was still down there. Yeah. And the audience were, because they told Jack Costanza with Nat King Cole, he couldn't appear because uh, of the racial uh, thing, you know. But uh, that it was, uh, some spots, it was uh, yeah. a little, little rough, you know. But we got through it. I think uh, through, through Ellington's peaceful ways and, and uh, uh, the, the wonderful attitude that the band had, you know, kind of, kind of rubbed off on everybody, mm -hmm. but still it existed. Yeah. And, uh, we played a date in Mississippi and, uh, there the townspeople were wonderful. They came to the rescue, uh, where we couldn't stay in certain hotels and so forth. I mean, these people came from wealthy families too. They had Strayhorn and Duke and Clark Terry staying in one house and Carney and mm -hmm. Russell Prokop and myself in another house. And, all on down the line, beautiful homes, they fed us. So, you know, along with the bad, there's some good. Too, yes, you know? yeah. And uh, uh, 
uh, these these were situations that uh, we got over. Yeah. We, we 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 dealt with it. Some sometimes it it's almost like a slap in the face, but you you realize uh, what the situation is and you go straight ahead mm -hmm. because you you've got something to do that's valid. Right. And uh, I think when you do that, you you realize that none of those things uh, should bother the the musicality of something. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that whoever's playing that music doesn't make a difference. It's just let's play it and show where the peace and love is. From the New Grove Dictionary of Jazz. Jazz, a music created mainly by black Americans in the early 20th century through an amalgamation of elements from European, American, and African tribal music. It has had a profound effect on international culture, not only through its considerable popularity, but through the role it has played in shaping the many forms of popular music that developed around and out of it. As Frank Foster eloquently stated, we've got this melting pot where we're all into each other's culture. That amalgamated melting pot has enabled the creation of multiple genres of distinctive American music. And I contend that in total, they constitute this country's most significant export. We'll continue this color of jazz thread in our next episode and discover that the peace and love that Clark Terry and Louis Belson mentioned had ups and downs of its own, even in the jazz world. See you on the flip side.